From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, have you heard about the flying geese syndrome in economics? I think it refers to an economy that's leading the way in economic development, and then other economies follow. It's a little bit like Canada geese, you know, those geese that have a V-shaped formation following the leader. Yes, that's right. But I confess I'd not heard of this concept before. Well, the notion comes from a Japanese economist, but our guest today coined his own follow-up concept, the flying dragon, for China. And it's simply because China is so much bigger than a goose. (laughs) That's fascinating. I'm looking forward to hearing more. Welcome to our podcast, Professor Lin. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Janet. Well, listen, we we like to ask our guests about their journey into their specialism, in your case, economics. Were you always interested in economics from when you were at school? Or how did your interest in your subject start to develop? I always want to make a contribution to the industrialization, modernization of China. And certainly when I was young, I was searching what I can do. At the beginning, I thought I should be an historian, uh, historian and I thought to understand the past better so I can make a contribution to the current situation. But it was unexpected opportunity. When I studied at Peking University, I met Theodore Schwartz. He was 1979 Nobel laureate. And when he visited Peking University, I was assigned to be his interpreter for his lecture. And he thought I did a very good job. So after he returned to Chicago, he gave me an offer to say, young man, if you like to study economics, I can offer you a scholarship. Who can refute such a good offer? So I went to Chicago, and uh, after I got my PhD, then, you know, certainly I've, like other, and I graduated from the University of Chicago, I continue my academic work, and so now I become an economist. But I have no regret. I think to be an economist will be able to make a much better contribution them to be historian. I used to be an economics journalist, and some people in my paper used to think that economics was very boring. And I used to say to them, but economics is about everything, everything in life. But when you were being an interpreter, what did you do that was so impressive to lead to this offer? Well, I think I smile a lot. When I translate his lecture, for some part, I do not fully understand. I smile and I talk to the audience. It's a joke. And then they smiled. Then Professor Schultz thought, I must did a very good job. Otherwise, the audience will not smile and respond to his lecture. I think, I think in American, it, that's called chutzpah. <laughs> yeah. So listen, I want to ask you about new structural economics, which is something that you're a proponent of. Could you describe to our listeners 
what this sub-discipline of economics is all about for you? Tell me in short, I try to bring the structural perspective into the modern economics. But I have to say, the modern economics is a structure. In general, you know, if you study the modern economics, for example, the macroeconomics or the growth economics, they use one sector model to describe the developed country and developing country. And in that kind of theoretical models, the difference between the developed country and a developing country is only quantitative difference. But we know there are qualitative difference between the developed country and developing country. As someone lived and grew up in a developing country, I can see the structural difference. It's very important for us to bring this kind of structural perspective into the mainstream economics. And I want to understand what caused the structure to be different and what caused the structure to evolve from a lower stage structure to a higher state structure. And now I also would like to understand what are the impacts of the structural difference. In the mainstream economics, there was a new subdiscipline called development economics. And the first generation of development economics is structuralism. They see the structural difference between the developed country and a developing country. But they did not you know, have a good understanding of the reason for the structural differences. And, and, and so they recommend that developing countries should adopt or should develop similar type of industry, the advanced industry, as the developed country. And I think the intention was good, but the result was disappointing. And I will try to distinguish my type of research from the structuralism. So I refer my type of research as new structural economics. Yeah. So give us an example of why a different structure in a developing economy matters so much for, say, what policies should be pursued. Well, here's that. To understand the structural differences and the way to change the structure will be very important. Because certainly, if developing countries want to catch up the developed country, at the end result, their income level should be the same. And if they want to have the same income level, they should have the same levels of productivities. And the reason why the advanced countries to have a high income, because they have those kind of technological intensive, capital intensive industries, which have high labor productivities. So they have a high income. In a developing country, currently their income level is low only because their industry are either in traditional agriculture or in small scale. And in those kind of industries, their productivity level is low. 
and that's the reason why their income level is low. And so if you want to narrow the income gap, you need to move up your industrial ladies to the same type of industries as the industries in the high-income country. But the reason why the high-income country they develop capital-intensive industry is because the advanced country, they started to accumulate capital since the Industrial Revolution. So relatively, they have abundant supply of capitals. But in a developing country, you know, their productivity level has been low and the accumulation of capital is small and they have a scarcity in capital. Under this kind of situation, you know, capital intensive industry is not the developing country's competitive advantages. And you need to understand the cost. Why you stay in this kind of industries which you know, uh, either land-intensive agriculture or labor-intensive small-scale industries. It's because your capital in your country is scarce. You need to understand this kind of reason. And so once you understand this kind of reason, then you start to find a way to accelerate the accumulation of capital. If you can accumulate your capital faster than the other one's country, then gradually you can narrow the, you know, the, the availability of capital to your workers, the gap of the availability of capitals, and then you can close the income gap. And so it's very important for us to be able to understand the causes, and then we can prescribe the policy. I read somewhere that you said that new in, new structural economics draws on a growth report by Mike Spence and others. And that report argued that fast sustained growth is possible with five traits. So one, open economies, two, macroeconomic stability, three, high rates of saving and investment, four, they let markets allocate resources, five, they have committed, credible and capable governments. Do you agree with those five traits? It's from the facts. So certainly, I do not dispute with the facts. But here is that. When Michael Spence, he's a good friend of mine, I respect him a lot. After he released this Growth Commission report and identified those five status facts for success, certainly all the country, all the government leaders in the developing world, were very excited, invited him to give advice how to make the country from the poverty trap to become a dynamic growing country and to catch up the advanced country. But at that time, uh, Mike Owen responded, said that these five status facts, these five traits are ingredients, but they are not recipes. However, you know, if you only have ingredients and you don't have recipe, you cannot cook good dishes, right? You need to have recipe. But from the new structural economics, actually, there's a recipe. Because the recipe for the success from the new structural economics 
is to develop your industries, your technologies, according to the competitive advantages based on your factor endowments. How many capital you have, how many labor forces you have, how many natural resources you have. And according to your factor endowments now, you can identify the sector which you have competitive advantages. Those kind of sectors, you can produce at the lowest possible cost. And that is the foundation for competitiveness. Competitive advantage is a concept understandable for economists. But how can you translate that into a spontaneous choice of the entrepreneur? Then you need to have, you know, a price system which can reflect your relative abundance of your factor endowments. The only way to get those kind of factor prices which can reflect your relative abundance of factor endowments is to have well-functioning competitive market. So that's market institution is very important. But only market institution is insufficient because the competition in the market is a competition of total cost, including the production cost determined by your you know, factor inputs. But it also depends on how high the transaction cost. If the transaction cost is too high, even your production cost is low, the total cost will be too high. Then you cannot be competitive in the market. And uh, the transaction cost depends on how good your infrastructure, how good your institution. And the improvement of infrastructure and institution to reduce the transaction cost. Entrepreneur cannot do that by themselves. So the government need to play a proactive facilitation role. So my recipe for success from the new structural economics that first in the principle to follow your competitive advantages in the process of economic development. But you need to have two institutions to make that possible. So if you look, the five status facts, the number four, the market economy, the number five, to have a credible, competent, committed government. Those are two institutional preconditions for a country to follow their competitive advantages determined by their factor endowments. Then, if you follow your competitive advantages, certainly you will be an open economy. You will produce goods which you have competitive advantages, you export that. And for goods you do not have competitive advantages, you will import that. Certainly, you will be an open economy. And secondly, if you follow your competitive advantages with a facilitation state in a market economy, you will be competitive. And under the kind of situation, certainly, you're not going to have homegrown crisis. At the same time, if you were hit by you know, crisis from outside, from global crisis, the country will be prepared to adopt you know, 
mitigation measures because you know they will accumulate more capital, government will be in a good position, and they will accumulate more foreign reserve. So they have a larger room for maneuver. And third, if you follow your compared advantages, on the one hand, you will be competitive, you will be profitable, and so you have more to save, to invest. At the same time, if you make investment according to your competitive advantages, return will be high. And so the incentive for saving will be high. So from what I see, those five ingredients actually imply a recipe. The recipe is to follow your competitive advantage as advocated by the new structure economics. But to do that, you need to have two institutional preconditions. Market economy, with a facilitation state, then the result will be open and stable, high shaving and high investment. Looking at all of that, the five traits of the recipe and how they work together, does China have that? Does China have the recipe? Does the rest of Asia have the recipe? I think, yes, China had that after 1978, the transition from a market plant economy to a market economy, because you can see China, after transition, China growing so dynamically in trade. And now China is the largest trading country in the world. Certainly, China is an open economy. And secondly, China, in the past 40 years, is the only economies which did not have an indigenous crisis. So it's stable. And third one, certainly China, with a saving rate of 40 to 50% of GDP, certainly China has high saving and high investment, as described. And China certainly has a credible commitment government. And China, on the way from a planned economy to a market economy, certainly China has all those five traits. But certainly, China is a transition economy. And in this process, you know, China adopts some kind of dual track gradual approach. On the one hand, continue to, to provide some necessary subsidies and protection to the other sectors. But the other sectors is inconsistent with China's competitive advantages. And that built up during the planning economy. And China needed, China needs to provide transitory protection and subsidies to them in order to maintain stability. But China liberalized the entry to the new sector, which are consistent with China's comparative advantage. And in those new sectors, all the five trades, you know, demonstrated in this, you know, process of transition. And if you look into other East Asian, you know, successful uh, economies from Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and so on. Certainly, they all had those five traits. And the fact that that approach has been so successful in China, in Korea, in other in other parts of Asia, does that give a model for the rest of Asia to follow? And are they following that model? I hope you know other Asian economies, for example, Thailand, Indonesia, and so on, and Cambodia, and so on, certainly. They learn from the lessons and they follow very closely. And so that's the reason why they also 
grow relatively dynamically compared to other regions in the world, especially if you look into the middle-income trap in Latin America, poverty trap in Africa, you can see all the East Asian country, they are performing much better because they learn from each other. You talk about a syndrome called the leading dragon syndrome. And way back when my own country, Britain, under, underwent its industrial revolution and, and in those days was the leading dragon and, and those industrial processes and, and, and ways of doing things were, went to Europe and then America. And then in the case of Asia, China is a leading dragon. Could you tell our listeners what the usefulness is of having that leading dragon in terms of everybody's development? I think that uh, first, let me say, leading dragon is a term coined by me. You know, the other similar term called the flying geese, you know, it's coined by a Japanese economist, Akambachu. And in the flying geese model, you know, he studied the economic development process in Japan and certainly other countries. He found the successful country in general started with more traditional labor-intensive industries and then gradually move up the industrial ladder to more capital-intensive industries. And in this process, when you move up to the new industries, you will open your old industry for other following countries to enter. So in this, it's just like a flying geese. And China follows similar pattern. However, the economic size is China is much larger because, as you know, the population size in Japan is about, you know, 120 million people. But China is 1.4 billion people. It's the size is more than 10 times as large, right? And so under this situation, although China follows similar pattern, you know, when China move up the industrial ladders, China will open the space for other foreign countries to enter. But the country can enter will be much larger. For example, in the 1950s, Japan moved up to more capital-intensive industry when they raised their, their income. At that time, Japan's population size, the size of workers in manufacturing sectors was 9.7 million. Okay, and uh, so Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore entered into the labor-intensive industries, and certainly they were also successful. And, and uh, in the 1980s, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore moved up the industrial ladder because they became newly industrialized economy and reached the stage of high income. They opened up the labor-intensive industry for other countries to enter. But at that time, Korean employed 1.5 million workers in manufacturing sectors. Taiwan about, you know, 5 million, about 4 million. I don't have exact number in my mind. And then Hong Kong, 1 million. And then Singapore, half a million. But this time, in, you know, 2010, China moved up the industrial ladies. China employed... 140 million workers in manufacturing sectors. With this 140 million, 85 million were in labor-intensive sectors. And with rising wages, China would 
lose competitive advantages in those labor-intensive sectors. And China will open up the space for other low-income countries to enter into. And so that's the reason why I you know, describe this as leading dragon. So it's a scale-up version of the flying geese. I want to um, move on to what might happen next. So the McKinsey Global Institute has got this research stream that we're asking the question, are we on the cusp of a new era? So we've had a, a number of disruptive events. We've had the pandemic. We've had in Europe the uh, invasion of Ukraine. We've got a bit geopolitical tension. Similar clusters of events have happened before, and they've tended to change the rules of the game or the landscape in which we operate. Do you think that these disruptions that we've seen over the last two or three years are leading to something different in the world? It could be economic, it could be political, it could be demographic. I think certainly we are going to enter into a world we all advocate before. Because in the past 30 years, especially after the collapse of Soviet Union, we entering into a union portal war, right? And I think that with the rise of China, now the economic size of China is about the size of the U.S. If we measure by purchase power parity, China is bigger than the U.S. If we measure by market exchange rate, certainly U.S. is still the biggest country in the world, and not only not economic size of China and the U.S. are roughly the same. We are seeing the rising of India as well. And with a 1.4 billion population, I think sooner or later, their economic size will be about the same as the U.S. again. And we know that economy is the foundation of political influence, cultural influence, and so on. So with that, I think we are going to enter into a multipolar world. We are going to have pluralism in the you know, culture, in the influence, and so on. And I think since I was young, I was always educated that you know, we need to respect the pluralism. Pluralism is a good thing because you know, it will cause certainly certain competition, but competition will stimulate innovation you know, and so on. So I think that we are going to change from unipolar world to, you know, multi-polar world. And I think that will be a much better scenario for the world than to have, you know, only one power and only one model. So in the past era, in our research, we talked about the era of markets and that there were two characteristics that stood out. One was many, many more economies opened up their markets. They, they adopted the market model. They opened up to trading around the world. And alongside that, there was this ama amazing spread of digital technologies. And Asia during that period, the Asian economies thrived enormously. So looking at participation in global supply chains and technology, could, could we look at global supply chains first? Do you think that the opening up of the world and the integrating of the world through global supply chains. Are we going to see more of that in the next era or, or not? And is it going to change? I think that first we need to understand trade is win-win for everyone. And so globalization certainly should be good for every country in the world. Okay. In principle, during the 
era of globalization, we see the dynamic economic growth in the world, right? And now we do see deglobalization. I think for two reasons. One reason is that the many advanced countries they have domestic problems, and actually the roots of the domestic problem is not globalization, but politicians use globalization as a scapegoat. That's one thing. And the secondly is the in a rivalry between the great power. Well, to be specific, between China and the U.S. But I think this just a temporary phenomenon. Fundamentally, you know, we have a philosophy, and I agree with that from the new structural economics. Certainly, we are going to encounter many problems at any time in any country, you know. But the best way to address the problem is development, and the best opportunity for development. Is for each country to follow the competitive advantages of their economy, and and to develop. You need to have market economy enabling government, and you also need to open globalization. So I think globalization should be part of the formula for we to address the poverty, for we to create a job, and to generate, you know. Social political stability in every country, and I'm sure people will learn the lesson. You've talked about technology transfer and how important that is. Do you think that Asia will move from being a huge consumer of technology to a leading innovator of technology? I think、uh, certainly, Asian people is as innovative as any people in the world, and actually. All the peoples are innovative, but to be in our technological leader, you need to have some conditions. The first one, if you want to be a technology leader, you need to invest a lot, and for invention new technologies. And only you reach high income stages, you will have those kind of resources to invest in new technology. So you need to be high income. The first one. For the new technology, you know, to be competitive, if you have a large domestic economy, you have some advantages. In 1980s up to about 2000, the most innovative firm in terms of patent ap- applications, the majority, you know, the top ten, you know, the the Japanese companies are listed on the top ten. So Japan was quite innovative, right? But The domestic economic size of Japan is not as large as the U.S., so it appeared that U.S. to be more competitive, only because the U.S. have a large domestic size. Okay, now I mentioned we are going to move into a multilateral world. Certainly, when the income level in China rose, then China will have more resources to invest in new technologies. And China also have a large domestic economy, so China will be innovative. And also, India is rising also. And when they reach high income stages, I'm sure they will be equally innovative as any other country, because individually we are all the same. But some country appear to have advantages in leading technology only because they reach high income stages earlier, 
and happen to have a large domestic economy. Overall, do you see the momentum that Asia has had over the past 30 years continuing with the same strength and speed? I think that I will continue because when we know the secret, we are not going to give up that enlightenment. So we will try our effort to maintain in a, a peaceful global environment, and we will continue to advocate globalization because that's good not only for Asia, but that's good for every country in the world. Lovely. So listen, I, we like to finish these podcasts with a few little quick questions. My first question to you, because we've been talking about recipes, is what is your favorite food? Well, I'm quite globalized. Certainly, I like Chinese food. I like Western food. I like Korean food. I like Japanese food also. Same with me. But I was thinking, is there a particular dish that you dream about when you're hungry? Oh, certainly those cooking from my mother's. Good answer. (laughs) What would you have done if you hadn't become an economist, do you think? Do you have other things that you would have liked to have done? As I studied, if I did not have the opportunity to study at Chicago, likely I'll be an historian. But if I'm not a historian, if I did not stay in academics, I think I will be a practitioner of development because I always want to contribute to the economic, the understanding of the success of a country and make a contribution to the success. What makes you optimistic about the world at the moment? I do believe in people's rationality. I think everyone has incentive to work hard so they can do better, not only for themselves, but also for their younger generations. And with that, I think once we have a better understanding about the nature and the causes of development, I think people will follow the kind of understanding, just like you know, the Adam Smith, the, the wealth of the nations, and he influenced the world. And once we have a better understanding for a developing country to catch up, So far, 85% of the population in the world live in the developing parts of the world. But once we understand for a developing country, the path to, you know, catch up, I think, you know, sooner or later, we will benefit from that understanding and that we can one day that all the people in the world can get out of poverty, all the people in the world can live in the same level of affluence. And what makes you pessimistic, if anything? What worries you? Oh, what worries me is some people due to their personal political intention and manipulate the message to their constituencies, causing the policy deviate from the policy which would be benefit their own people and would also benefit people in the world. So finally, what one piece of advice would you give to our listeners? I think the one piece of the advice that I'd like to offer to both the developed country and developing country is that we always have to stop from what we have. Look at what you have now 
and instead of what other people have. And look at what you can do your best on what you have now instead of look at other people could do well and you could not do well. If all the people in the world can follow, all the government, all the people in the world follow this advice, we can all enjoy and a very sustainable dynamic economic growth anytime in anywhere. And we are going to have a much better world. Thank you so much. Now, listen, I have to say to my listeners that Professor Lin is smiling a lot. And that's how he got his great break in Chicago. So that's very welcome. Thank you very much, Janet. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.